This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of this talk is The Trinity at Christ's Baptism and the Institution of the First Sacrament. Christ's Baptism by John in the Jordan, the three persons of the Holy Trinity are manifested clearly to the world for the first time. A voice from heaven testifies that Jesus is the Father's beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descends on Christ in the form of a dove. St. Thomas Aquinas interprets this as manifesting two great and foundational divine missions for the dispensation of salvation, the mission or the sending of the Son as man in the Incarnation, and the concurrent mission or sending of the Holy Spirit to Christ as man, who becomes the font of the Spirit for the world. In this paper, I propose to examine Christ's baptism, this event from the Gospels, from the perspective of these divine missions, which is to say, as a case study in Aquinas' Trinitarian Christology, as it unfolds into sacramental theology. So it has two parts. Part one studies how Aquinas' treatment of Christ's baptism shows his Trinitarian Christology in action. The baptism manifests Christ's divine identity as the Son, which necessarily entails the revelation of the three divine persons, alerting us to the Trinitarian structure of the Incarnation itself. Part two then treats what I think is an underappreciated dimension of this mystery, the Trinitarian exemplarity of Christ for the sacrament of baptism. So, part one, the Trinitarian Christology of Christ's baptism. At his baptism, as I've mentioned, Christ is publicly revealed as the Father's Son. And in this sense, his divine mission, which up to that point had been a hidden mystery, is rendered manifest. This is evident, St. Thomas thinks, first of all, in the Father's voice, which testifies this is my beloved son. Aquinas explains that it's fitting for the fa father to be manifested in this way by a voice because the father is the speaker of the word. I won't dwell on this interesting point for reasons of time. There's a lot of text that I had to cut out of this presentation, but I refer you to text A on your handout, which makes precisely this point. Aquinas also notes that when Jesus is manifested as the father's son, the Father, too, is revealed. In fact, Aquinas holds, as he must, that the Father-Son relation also implies the Holy Spirit, who proceeds as their mutual love. He thinks that the Father's voice calls Jesus his beloved for precisely this reason. It's fascinating. That is because love itself proceeds from the Father loving the Son and from the Son loving the Father. That's a quotation from Aquinas. So to call the Son beloved is to imply the Holy Spirit. What does Aquinas have to say about the voice itself, this miraculous voice? St. Thomas takes, planes, takes pains to explain that the Father is, this is a quotation, quote, the Father is only revealed in the voice as the author of the voice, or as speaking through the voice. His point is that the Father is not a voice. 
The voice is only a creaturely effect. Aquinas' concern is to safeguard the transcendence of God here. Whatever is visible or sensible is not God himself, but is some effect in the world by which God reveals himself and makes himself present. This is text B, which again, I will not read for the sake of time. Well, how, as a creaturely effect, does the voice belong to the Father? Is it exclusively the Father's voice? Here, Aquinas offers a very nuanced explanation. It's a good example of his approach to the personal mode of Trinitarian action, the principles of which have been carefully explicated by my teacher, Gilles Emery. The Father is the author of the voice and is manifested by it, but the Father is not the exclusive efficient cause of the voice. This is text C on your handout, which, again, for reasons of time, I will not read today. Aquinas's point in this text is that all three divine persons act inseparably together in the order of efficient causality with respect to every odd extra action of God in the world. And that general rule applies to the creaturely effects that make present or reveal a distinct divine person. The whole trinity efficiently causes the Father's voice as an efficient cause and causes that voice to relate back to or to manifest the person of the Father. Now, unlike the Son's incarnation, the Father is not hypostatically united to an audible sound. The Son, by contrast, is hypostatically united to a visible human nature. That's a very special case. Still, that miraculous sound is related to the Father as a sign that points back to its referent. And it is specially adapted to manifest what is proper to the Father. That is, the Father is the person in God who speaks and thus who manifests his word. Let's move on to the dove. What of the Holy Spirit's appearance in the form of a dove? Aside from the significance of this for the institution of baptism, which I'll treat in a moment in part two, the capital point to underscore here is that Aquinas numbers this, this appearance of the dove, as the first of the four great visible missions of the Holy Spirit. The other three are the luminous cloud at the transfiguration, Christ's breath, his breathing on the apostles on the evening of Easter, and the tongues of fire at Pentecost. Like those other visible missions, the appearance of a dove is a visible sign that points to the Spirit's invisible presence. To whom? To whom is the Spirit present? Well, first of all, Aquinas underlines, the Spirit is neither sent to the dove nor becomes a dove. Same analysis as with the Father's voice. There is no hypostatic union between the Spirit and a dove. The dove is rather a created effect, a visible sign which is seen by the bodily eyes of those looking on, signifying to them the presence of the Spirit in Christ's humanity, first of all. As a created effect, it's efficiently caused by all three divine persons in order to point out or show forth 
the Holy Spirit. And Aquinas thinks, for reasons that we wouldn't have time to get into here, that the, the image of a dove is especially apt for revealing what is proper to the Holy Spirit. And he has an interesting exegesis of that. By the way, interestingly, uh, this is just a footnote, Aquinas changed his mind on whether he thought the spirit was a real, an- or the, the dove was a real animal, or just some kind of miraculous. So later, his later view is, no, it's a real animal, miraculously brought into being. Aquinas emphasizes that the spirit's visible mission, his descending in the form of a dove, visibly, was not the beginning of something new in Jesus, nor was it even made for Jesus' sake. It was for our sake. This is text D, which I will read. Lest anyone believe that the Holy Spirit descended on Christ as if Christ needed to receive the Holy Spirit anew for his sanctification, the Baptist, John the Baptist, shows the reason for the Spirit's descent, saying that he did not descend because of Christ's need, but ours, namely, so that Christ's grace would be manifested to us. And so he says, this is, these are the Baptist words in John's Gospel, I did not know him, but for this I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Aquinas thinks that Jesus does not have to wait for the Spirit to inspire him to prophesy, for example, as other prophets do. He has the fullness of the Spirit from the beginning, from the first moment of his conception. I should also note that when Aquinas flags that Jesus has a full possession of the Holy Spirit, something that appears in this text that I've just quoted and in many others dealing with Christ's baptism. He's also pointing us to his robust account of Christ's habitual grace, something that we find in the Summa in questions, in the Tertiopars in questions seven and then eight. As man, Jesus receives the Spirit in full at the first moment of his conception, and thus his human nature is made apt and ready full of habitual grace as a man, to serve as the human instrument of the divine word. That habitual grace of Christ, of course, is really the same as Christ's capital grace, insofar as he is the head of the church, which is to say, Jesus receives the spirit in full as man so that he will become the font of the spirit for the world, and hence the head of his body, the church, to whom he gives the Spirit. And of course, this is pointing us forward to our next section about baptism. Let me conclude this section about the Trinitarian Christology of this episode, considered in itself, by returning to Aquinas' comparison of the two visible missions in evidence at Christ's baptism, that of the Son in his human nature and that of the Spirit in the form of a dove. Another footnote, the Father is never sent although he is present and appears, made made known in the baptism, he's not sent. Why? Because he is not from another. So he cannot be sent, but he can come. He can be, be present. What is the significance of the different visible signs of these two divine missions, that of the Son and of the Spirit at the baptism? Aquinas thinks there is a profound Trinitarian reason behind the relationship of these two visible signs. So here's a long quotation from Aquinas, the second part of which is on text E on the handout. The first part uh, is not. Aquinas writes, For it belongs to the Holy Spirit, insofar as he proceeds as love, 
to be the gift of sanctification. But to the Son, as a principle of the Holy Spirit, it belongs to be the author of this sanctification. And hence, the Son was visibly sent as the author of sanctification, while the Holy Spirit was visibly sent as a sign of sanctification. And then this is where your text on uh, on the handout picks up. Hence, it was necessary that the visible mission of the Son be made according to a rational nature to which it belongs to act and which is capable of sanctifying. But it was not necessary that the dove would be assumed by the Holy Spirit into a unity of person, since it was not assumed to do something, but only to point to something. This is very important. Because the Son is sent into the world to sanctify the world by what he does and what he undergoes, what he suffers, he assumes a rational nature capable of that kind of free action. Because the Holy Spirit is the gift of sanctification given by the Son, the Spirit is sent to the incarnate Son as the sign of that sanctification, the dove descending on his humanity. And as we'll see in part two, it's because he receives the Spirit as man that Jesus becomes, even in his humanity, the author of sanctification, which is to say the font of the Holy Spirit for the world, above all, through the sacraments. So at the baptism, there's the sign that Jesus is receiving, has received, the Spirit in full, in virtue of which he is the font of the Spirit to the world, even as man. This brings us then to part two of my talk. The Trinitarian exemplarity of Christ in the sacrament of baptism. I'd like now to turn to what I think is an underappreciated dimension of the mystery of Christ's baptism. Christ's Trinitarian exemplarity for this sacrament. For Aquinas, Jesus does not only institute baptism by an act of divine authority or as a sacramental reality apart from himself. He does something even more strikingly incarnational and Trinitarian and also more personal. Though not needing to be baptized himself, Christ makes himself the exemplar of baptism for our sake so that as we receive this sacrament, we might be configured to the Trinitarian pattern of his incarnation. Or to put it another way, Aquinas understands Christ's baptism to be the origin and foundation, the institution in the strongest sense of that Latin word, institutio, the institutio for how the incarnation, which itself is thoroughly Trinitarian in its structure and its deepest principles, configures each individual Christian to Christ and thus to the Holy Trinity. In our reception of baptism, therefore, Christ's own baptism is like a seal impressing on the baptized its own Trinitarian pattern. We receive the Holy Spirit configuring us to the incarnate Son, making us adopted sons and daughters of the Father. 
This is a feature of Aquinas' wide-angle perspective on salvation as a whole, which for him is always an intrinsically Trinitarian and Christological, also always and intrinsically sacramental. That's because the sacraments extend and apply the mystery of the Incarnation to each individual Christian. Salvation for Aquinas is sacramental. Aquinas lays this out in a key passage from the prologue to Book 4 of his commentary on the sentences, and this is text F on your handout. A sufficient remedy for sin can only be had from the word of God, who is the font of wisdom on high and thus the font of life. As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will, John 5.20. For this reason, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. But because this medicine is so powerful that it could heal all, hence, from this first and universal medicine, that is the word incarnate, other particular medicines proceed, conformed to that universal medicine by the mediation of which the universal medicine reaches the sick. And these are the sacraments. The making of the medicine refers to the incarnation of the word and the institution of the sacraments in which the word comes to the element and makes it a sacrament so that there is a conformity of the sacrament to the incarnate word. That's really important, I think, especially that last line. In the sacraments, there is a conformity of the sacrament to the incarnate word. There's something parallel here between the word entering the world as a man and the sacraments being formed by the pattern of that incarnation, the matter even of the sacraments. So notice the progression in this text. Aquinas starts with the Trinity, the word's procession from the Father. Then he moves to Christology, and then he arrives at the sacraments. A sufficient remedy for sin must be, above all, something from God, which is given to us by the Son who proceeds from the Father as begotten wisdom, and this divine word, incarnate wisdom, becomes incarnate precisely to apply that remedy to our fallen nature. And this medicine this remedy is given to us in the sacraments, which themselves are exemplified, strong word, exemplified by the incarnate word who institutes the sacraments, each sacrament, by configuring a sensible reality to himself. So this general principle, which I will call Christ's Trinitarian exemplarity for the sacraments, is found everywhere. I think it's everywhere at work. In, especially in Aquinas' treatment of Christ's baptism. In every text where Aquinas discusses Christ's baptism at any length, this principle shows up. So, in the Summa Theologiae's treatment of baptism, in, uh, of Christ's baptism, in uh, question 39 of the Tertiopars, the dominant theme is that Christ willed to be baptized not because he needed it, but for our sake, to serve as an exemplar. And the sense of the word exemplar or example at work there, and in Aquinas' thought more broadly, is quite robust. An exemplar is not only a moral lesson, although surely it includes that, 
Nor does St. Thomas simply mean that our baptism resembles Christ's baptism, or that Christ is the finest example, like the first edition, while our baptism is a later printing. Rather, an exemplar is the ratio, the explanation or the reason for, and also the cause of what comes after it. Much like the design of a building conceived in an architect's mind is the cause and the reason why the building was built the way it was. What comes later is formed according to the exemplar. Exemplar causality has a kinship thus to formal causality. To speak of the Trinitarian exemplarity of Christ in the sacraments, therefore, is to identify how the incarnate word in the mysteries of his earthly life, wherein he institutes the sacraments, incarnates a Trinitarian pattern for the salvation of man from sin and imprints that pattern in the sacraments as he institutes them and likewise on us as we receive them. So with this in mind, we see a much richer significance to the details of Christ's baptism, as Aquinas, of course, does. It's not just a nice little florilegia about this event in Christ's life. Aquinas sees each of the principal elements of Christ's baptism as exemplary for our baptism. The three distinct manifestations of the divine persons are at the top of the list because they are features of the Trinitarian structure of the incarnation itself, which is to say of the divine missions, and therefore of the mystery of Christ's baptism and our baptism. So Aquinas reasons, and this is text G on your handout. The baptism of Christ, which was the exemplar of our baptism, should manifest what is accomplished in our baptism. But the baptism by which the faithful are baptized is consecrated in the invocation and power of the Trinity. As Matthew 28, 19 says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And hence at the baptism of Christ, as Jerome says, the mystery of the Trinity is manifested. The Lord himself is baptized in his human nature. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father is heard bearing witness to the Son. The sacramental form of baptism itself, that is the invocation distinctly of the three divine persons, is intrinsically connected to Christ's own baptism. Insofar as our baptism is a sacramental representation of the three persons manifested at Christ's baptism. Look at text H, where Thomas says this expressly. Note that in Christ's baptism, not only is the end and fruit of baptism represented, but even its form, which is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For the Son was in the flesh, the Father in the voice, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. In fact, Aquinas even says that for a baptism to be valid, the three persons must be audibly and expressly named by the minister. And Aquinas draws this conclusion not only from the fact that this is the formula that Christ gave us at Matthew 28, but also because, quote, at Christ's baptism, where our sanctification of baptism has its origin, 
The Trinity was present to the senses. The Father in the voice, the Son in a human nature, and the Holy Spirit in the dove, end quote. The matter of baptism, too, is prepared by Christ for our baptism through his baptism. Quote, by his touch, Christ consecrates all water, and hence baptism is said to be the font of the Savior, end quote. This is a rich patristic theme that Aquinas takes up and repeats often. I'll pass over it so that we can get to some even more interesting things. The effects of baptism. They, too, are directly tied by Aquinas to what is manifested at Christ's baptism. For example, baptism makes us adopted sons and daughters of the Father. This is text I on your handout. Quote, This is why the Father appeared in the sound of the voice, bearing witness to the natural filiation of Christ, saying, This is my beloved Son. It is to a likeness of this filiation that we are regenerated by baptismal grace to become adopted sons. Similarly, Christ's full possession of the Holy Spirit is manifested by the descent of the dove at his baptism, and in a similar way, we receive a share in this spirit at our baptism. In fact, Aquinas points out that we only receive the Holy Spirit at baptism as a gift coming from Christ, a sharing in his full possession of the Holy Spirit as man. We could add that baptism works our regeneration according to the pattern of the Trinitarian possessions. And this is text J on your handout. Quote, Regeneration is made through baptism, and in regenerating, three things are needed. To whom it is made, through whom, and by whom. God the Father is to whom it is made. The Son is through whom it is made. God sent his Son that we might receive adoption as sons. Because through adoption to the natural Son, we are sons. By whom? Because we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have not received a spirit of slavery in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of the sons of God. And these were in Christ's baptism, because the Holy Spirit was through whom? The Father was to whom? Sorry, the Son was through whom? The Father was to whom? And the Holy Spirit was in the dove. Okay, uh, we've now worked our way through the, the principal uh, significations. So let me now pose an objection to what I've been laying out. Aquinas says that the gates of heaven were only opened for us at Christ's passion. And he says that baptism and all of the sacraments have their efficacy from the passion. Doesn't the reading that I'm offering here overemphasize the mystery of Christ's baptism, as if that mystery by itself would be sufficient to ground the saving power of our baptism? That seems uh, to run into conflicts with Aquinas' own texts. So this objection offers an opportunity to grasp the significance of Aquinas' axiom that all of the things that Christ does and suffers, omnia acta ad passa Christi, are salvific for us. This is not meant to be taken to mean that any individual moment in Christ's earthly life is sufficient for accomplishing the whole work of salvation. The point, rather, is that every moment 
has a salvific significance and is related to the whole. The incarnation in its every detail is revealing the divine mystery and accomplishing our salvation. It would be foreign to the mind of Aquinas, I think, to set the saving efficacy of Christ's baptism over against that of the passion. Rather, these two mysteries in Christ's life are intrinsically related to each other. Aquinas thinks that Christ's descent into the waters foreshadows his passion, and that Jesus does this precisely in order to establish the pattern by which the passion will be applied to us. Both Christ's baptism and his passion reveal aspects of the Trinitarian salvation accomplished through the Incarnation, and that is a salvation that is also intrinsically sacramental. In a sense, then, the baptism is a distinct mystery from that of the Passion, and in another sense, it anticipates the full accomplishment of the saving work of Christ at the Passion, and so, in a sense, Christ's baptism is only fully intelligible in the light of the consummation of that mystery. We see this in text K, which I will not read for you. With respect to us, then, the salvation brought to us by baptism follows the passion, whereas in Christ's life, it comes before the passion. It foreshadows it. You see this clearly in text L, for example, which also I will skip over. Or, to put it even more concisely, quoting Aquinas, quote, the heavens were opened at Christ's baptism because baptism is that through which we are made sharers in the passion of Christ, being buried with him in his death. Hence, his baptism only opened the gates of heaven, presupposing the passion which was to follow, end quote. In conclusion, let me now return to the overarching perspective of the visible missions. As the first great visible mission of the Holy Spirit, Aquinas regards Christ's baptism as revealing a central feature of the dispensation of salvation, that the Son is sent as the incarnate author of salvation, of sanctification, who both receives the Holy Spirit as man and then pours the Spirit out on the world after his passion. So this is text M on your handout. In order to signify the outflow of Christ's grace to us through the mode of operation, a visible mission was made to him at his baptism. At that moment, by the touch of his most pure flesh, he connected the waters to regenerating life. And hence, a mission of the Holy Spirit was made to him in the appearance of a dove to signify spiritual fecundity, because the dove is a most fecund animal. One of the things Aquinas thinks is the significance of the dove, among many others. This is also why the Father appeared in the sound of the voice, testifying to his natural filiation, to whose likeness of filiation, through baptismal grace, we are regenerated as adopted sons. Hence, it is clear why a visible mission was not made to Christ at the beginning of his conception. Instead, it was made later, when his grace began to flow out to others. St. Thomas goes on in this text to explain that this is also why a visible mission of the Holy Spirit was made to the apostles on Easter Sunday evening when Christ breathes on them and commissions them to forgive sins. Jesus' visible sending of the Spirit to the apostles is paired by Aquinas with Christ's baptism. 
because both reveal that saving sacramental graces flow from Christ to the faithful, and especially on the evening of the resurrection, that this flows through the ministers whom Jesus appoints in the church to administer the sacraments. So to just step back for one moment and kind of summarize before uh, the last sentence, what you see is that in the mission of Christ, of the Son, to the world in the Incarnation, which is always accompanied by the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit from the first moment of his existence as man, you have at the beginning a hidden mystery, a hidden mission. And that mission, of course, is for the sake of the eventual invisible missions of the divine persons to each of us. That's the ultimate goal of the incarnation. This hidden mission at Christ's conception unfolds through time and is manifested. And its first great moment of manifestation is at Christ's baptism, where the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit becomes visible in these visible signs. That is for the sake of unveiling this important aspect of what is being accomplished in this mission, the salvation of the world through the incarnation of Christ. And that mystery is unfolded even further in Christ's life as he passes through all the various mysteries of his life, culminating in the passion and the glorification of Christ, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and then our reception of this reality of grace flowing from Christ in the sacraments. So to conclude, in all of this, we see that the central mysteries of Christ's life not only reveal the divine persons of the Trinity, they manifest the Trinitarian pattern of our salvation, a sacramental salvation, and thus provide for our return to God. Thank you. So I think we have uh, nine minutes for questions. Yes, Father Matthew. That's an excellent question. Let me just repeat it for those who may not have heard. The, the question is, uh, it seems like this is a way of doing Trinitarian Christology, uh, doing Trinitarian theology by way of Christology rather than, than the reverse. And perhaps that suggests uh, a need to unite the teaching of Christology with the teaching of Trinitarian theology. And I think there's much to be said in favor of, of that kind of view, although I would add that I think it's only really possible to do this kind of reading of the mysteries of Christ's life uh, by way of sort of return to the scriptural texts or the scriptural mysteries after having done a systemat the systematic work that you do in, say, Trinitarian theology and also Christology. So um, uh, Father Gilles Emery talks about this kind of uh, return to meditate on the mysteries after having done the speculative dogmatic work, because you do need to clarify, for example, the distinction between the persons, the unity of the divine essence, uh, the, what is proper to the divine persons. That, that needs to be in place, for example, to understand the doctrine of the word um, proceeding from the Father by way of intellect helps you when you go back to understand what is this voice uh, doing, you know, so I think, uh, I think the way Aquinas actually structures the Summa is very nice because we've done, uh, Trinitarian theology.
Then we've done the structure of the incarnation in the first part of the Tertia Pars. And then we get the mysteries of Christ's life, which really uh, bring out elements of both. Father Thomas Joseph? Thank you, Father Robert. Um, there's a lot of very interesting observations about baptismal theology there. I have a question in uh, complementary to your, what you said, uh, and it's a genuinely um, ignorant question. Do you think that Aquinas has a theology of character, baptismal character, that has a Christological sense? Uh, is it very developed? And so could you explain how that fits into this? Yes, so there was a passage about character that I didn't include in this paper, um, just for reasons of space. Uh, I tried to select the elements that were manifesting very clearly the Trinitarian dimension. Um, so there isn't, there wasn't a strong, as my, my vague recollection of having gone through the texts uh, and why I didn't, you know, move that text from the right side of the page to the left side of the page, which were the texts I was going to use for the paper, was because it just didn't, come through as clearly in the text. I think you could articulate uh, an account of that. And in fact, when Aquinas talks about character with respect to holy orders, he does make that connection. And the connection is, is actually based on a, um, you know, a, a text of St. Paul, if I'm not mistaken, about Christ being the character of the Father. I mean, this idea of character enters into theology really from that scriptural text which is a reference to Christ as the character of the Father. So in a certain way, the original reference point for character is Christological, or actually Trinitarian, insofar as it's like a kind of like image. Aquinas uh, assimilates it to the proper name of image uh, with respect to the Son. So in terms of what are, the, what are the proper names of the Son? Son, word, image, and he puts this text about character under image. But I don't think he really commented on that explicitly with reference to um, the episode of Christ's baptism, although I think you can make the connection. Thank you. Um, uh, do you think that, do you think that uh, uh, St. Thomas' uh, uh, lecture of the Christ's baptism uh, is good uh, within our uh, biblical exegesis uh, as is done in our days? So I think um, uh, this you're probably exposing a weakness of mine, which would be how well do I know contemporary exegesis on, on Christ's baptism? I think often um, there is a, you know, if you, if you analyze this purely through a historical lens, of course, there's always a temptation to overemphasize a kind of, um, you know, merely human Christ or the human dimension of Christ at the baptism, then perhaps learning something about his vocation from the voice of the Father um, and from you know what he begins to see around him. So sometimes you will you will uh, read exegetical accounts that suggest, oh well, you know the real institutor of baptism is John the Baptist, and Jesus kind of just was in that group of followers, and then you know he's baptized and things. Like things begin to come into focus for him as he begins like exercising some more public ministry. And he, he comes to see that his vocation that God has given from, you know, from before all time is now unfolding in his own human consciousness as he passes through these, these episodes. Um, 
I think from a Thomistic perspective, that's inadequate to the mystery, especially if you see Christ's baptism as his own intentional institution of the way that we are going to be saved. You know, so intentionally impressing this kind of divine action and pattern on the human nature and, and configuring the sacrament of baptism to himself. You know, I think that requires just a totally different character of, of what we think Jesus is aware of as he's going uh, to the baptism. Although I would argue that there's a good grounding in the text for Aquinas' view. For example, John the Baptist says, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, let us fulfill all righteousness. So when Aquinas does an exegesis of that, he talks about how this is precisely what fulfilling all righteousness, this was another part of the paper that I had to cut out for reasons of time. But fulfilling all righteousness for, for uh, Aquinas is Jesus saying, this is the way that the world will be remade as just. And so I am fulfilling that plan by, even though I don't need to be baptized. So, you know, you're right, John, I don't need to be baptized, but this is the way to, to fulfill the whole plan. Yes, Maria. Um, I think when we talk about the baptism as the ratio, we're talking about like the pattern or the cause, the, the intelligible content. And I, I see it, it is 344, so why don't we draw this session to a close and let, uh, let those who need to depart do so. And we'll, we'll have our next, uh, our next, I'll invite our next speaker to the, thank you. Thank you.